And so it's important for us to understand this context, to understand who wrote the letter uh, uh, of James, um, besides James, that's pretty much implied, you know that, um, and why it was written. So the author, like I said, is James, but there are two James, Jameses that this James could be. The first is the, the brother of John, one of the 12 apostles, uh, who are referred to as the Sons of Thunder, which best nickname ever, right? Like, like Judas Iscariot, I mean, the tax collector, Son of Thunder, awesome. That's fantastic. Um, or it could be James, the, the brother of Jesus, uh, because he had uh, Mary and Joseph. Yes, Mary was had the Immaculate Conception, etc. But afterward, he had siblings, um, and he had a brother named James, who was considered uh, and known to be the, the basically the bishop over the ch- the new church in Jerusalem. And so, w- either one, whether it's James, who is the brother of John, or James, the brother of Jesus, they both have a very similar and shared context. Their reasons for writing, the timing and everything, is going to be very, very much the same. Specifically, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there's a, uh, in Acts chapter 7, you have, uh, and this is after Pentecost, the church has started, there is this great persecution. And a, a disciple and a deacon, one of the first deacons named uh, Stephen, he was, um, he was captured and arrested and, and in testifying and saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is God, they stone him. And in response to that, there is this great persecution that arises that it's summarized very well in Acts 8, 1 through 3, which I'm going to read here. It says, and Saul, who later becomes Paul, approved of his execution. He oversaw it. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so in the letter of James, when the very first verse, which we're going to talk, we're going to talk about verses 1 through 8 today, but the very first verse says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, we've got our author, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, to the Jewish Christians who have been scattered by suffering and hardship and the specific variety that is persecution for for living faithfully, for suffering for that. In other words, for exiles, which we talked a lot this past fall, didn't we? It is to them. It is to these kind of wet behind the ears, brand new Jewish Christian leaders who are on fire for the gospel, who are on fire for Jesus, on fire for their faith, and yet at the same time, they are being persecuted for that faith. And the prompt for this entire letter, this is so important, read everything and hear everything through the lens of that these same Jewish Christians, this audience that James is writing to, they're talking about fighting fire with fire. They're saying, maybe we should fight back. Maybe we should gain enough wealth and power that, such that we can influence and, and gain the positions in society such that we can protect ourselves. This doesn't sound familiar at all, I'm sure. And that's what James writes is a vision of an alternative, a vision that is, frankly, very, very strange if you are looking at the world's th- world through the lens that these young 
Jewish Christian leaders are that they would fight fire with fire. And so we're going to, let's jump into, knowing that is the context, let's jump into verse 2, and we're going to read through verse 8 and then verse 12. But James gets right to the point, right? He says, greetings, and then, boom, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, like, not how's your mom, your mom doing? Like, what's going on? Like, how's work treating you? No, it's like, no, no, guys, listen up. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be, and this word here says perfect, but I want you to read mature. For grammatical reasons, are not worth going into. Mature is a better translation. That you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, it's kind of a funny, like, just in case, if you think you lack wisdom, by the way, you do, that's why I'm writing, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then I'll skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you asking for wisdom as well. There's none of us who have arrived and are so wise that we know how to approach this problem and challenge of suffering or of persecution or, or distress or conflict. None of us know perfectly how to live faithfully and follow you in this world, Lord. Um, but Lord, you can't help us to live maturely, if not perfectly. So Lord, um, guide us this morning. Help us to lean into the wisdom you have in your word. And Lord, help us to see the, see the freedom in that. Pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen. So my sermon this morning, the title is Strange Faith, right? Because this is a very weird thing that we're talking about. We're talking about an approach to suffering that says that our response when we are encountering suffering is, could and should be joy. That's just weird. Let's just acknowledge that, right? And unfortunately, we have a really bad habit, just modern-day American people, never mind as Christians, that when we encounter something or we experience something that has been misused against us, we want to disuse it. And we say, well, this cannot be true or we will not believe it, right? Um, to say to someone who, is, who has been through a trial, rejoice, you know, rejoice. It's, this is actually good news. God is going to grow you in the midst of this. That can be delivered as a truth at the wrong way in the wrong way or at the wrong time, but it can still be true, right? As, as is always the case, uh, anytime you come across a passage that's just like particularly challenging around suffering or pain or something controversial, it never fails that something in your life is going to happen that week as you, as you get ready to preach on it, okay? And so I've been solo parenting all weekend and will be through Monday night until Hannah comes home because her grandma, her nini, uh, has been in the hospital all of last week for pneumonia, and she took a real bad turn on Thursday 
night. So we booked a flight, and she flew out early Friday morning in order to hopefully get there before she passes. Thankfully, <laughs> prayer is real, y'all. Um, she has turned a corner and is uh, coming back in the other direction and is doing much better, uh, but she is herself, Hannah's Nini, is herself a, a walking epitome of, of this sermon in a lot of ways. She's been through a lot. She's a four foot 11 tank, right? She, she does not like being in the hospital and is really frustrated because she hasn't, she's not used to having to go to the hospital, not because she hasn't gone through a lot, but because she just weathers it. She has three sons, of one of which is Hannah's dad, um, and she only stayed overnight in the hospital one night for each of two of them. She went home the same day for the first one. Tank, okay? Now, when that happened, and we were realizing that, man, we got to find a way to get you home, and she's not doing good, and she just got off the phone with her dad on Thursday night, that was the wrong time to say, count it all joys, my wife. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that this testing of your faith, it doesn't make this untrue. It just makes me foolish if I had done that. I didn't do that. Don't worry. I'm, I'm slow to learn, but I'm not that slow, okay? This is not a, true, a truism enabling us to avoid empathizing with people who are suffering. That is not the purpose that James is, has in writing this. His purpose is to help us to live with the goal of being steadfast, of being able to endure those trials. And he says that the, means, the, the, the way that that happens, both the means and the fruit of that, is maturity. Verses 2 through 4. Let me read this, uh, verses 3 through 4 again. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, the pursuit of that will have the effect that you will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Not that the trial is over or trials don't happen, but that you're, you're equipped for it. That Jesus is the one that does that. Now, I say that this approach to suffering is strange because whatever this is articulating, our default is the opposite. Right? Our default is to avoid suffering. It is to live a, it, with the goal of having a pain-free life. The irony of that, unfortunately, is that that can really only be a goal that we are able to fool ourselves into thinking is possible if we have sufficient privilege to live the lie most of the time and to actually avoid kind of an everyday, ordinary suffering. But that doesn't stop us, like, ironically, from pursuing it anyway. I... I was talking with a friend who's a pastor about, um, about this passage, and he sent me this tweet he came across. It's not from anybody who, who like, they're not like an author or, or a theologian. It was just somebody commenting and saying this. She said, um, we might do things that our Christian fundamentalist parents might have done. For example, ask people not to watch certain things in front of us or boycott certain organizations or speakers, etc. But the reason that we do it, emotional health and safety, is different, and that's okay. Now, safety, good thing. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Emotional health, also a very good thing. But let's be real. If, if your goal and you're true, you were truly concerned about emotional health, you would not be on Twitter posting that. Right? Social media is not good and conducive for our emotional health, and we have these blind spots. Right? 
This is a symptom, and what I'm trying to say with this tweet is it is a symptom that this is somebody who's not necessarily free from a fundamentalism, but it's somebody who has just traded a Christian fundamentalism for a therapeutic fundamentalism, which sees the source of danger as being very different. Instead of sin, it's just kind of suffering in general, but it has the same goal, which is a self-preservation that's incompatible with following a self-giving Savior. Now, that can be a wise thing to do, you know, prioritizing your emotional safety to a, to a point and to a degree. But when it becomes a fundamentalism, when it becomes an ideology, when it becomes a way that we see the world and the way that we approach all suffering, then that is an exercise of self-protection and not Christian love. It's a very different thing. So um, maybe another way to say this is it's, it hit me this morning, actually, that the whole tradition of like monks and the monastic movement that started in the Middle Ages. We, we think that monasteries were started because monks were trying to flee you know, the pain of their then modern life and to get away, to be really serious about God. But it's actually the opposite. They're, they built monasteries in order to flee the pleasures and the distractions of modern life. They embraced asceticism. They were embracing hardship and difficulty. We instead build our homes and our houses and suburbia in general in order to flee the pain of modern life. It's a very different purpose, but a very similar disposition. Now, let me give my a famous, like I said, I know I say this a lot, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you should sprint toward danger like it's a virtue in and of itself. Like, just go play on the highway, kids. No, that is not a thing. And there's nothing in the New Testament or the Old Testament that says, you know, if given an opportunity to flee unnecessary pain and hardship, stay and don't do that. Like, there's nothing in, in Scripture that says that, right? There, in fact, there are lots of examples in the New Testament where the apostles themselves are very wisely uh, retreating so that they can fight another day, right? What James is saying, and remember, this, it's important to remember that this is two persecuted Christians who are being tempted to fight fire with fire, what James is telling us is that our response to suffering, both generic kind of general suffering, but especially that which is, happens from persecution or having to live faithfully, our response to that reveals the conditions of our heart and a disposition of heart. You see, we, we think that our primary or our ultimate danger is the stuff out there, but it's actually the stuff in here. You guys have heard me talk about how in my first role and job as a pastor in that two and a half year period, two years of that was spent suffering under spiritual abuse, trust betrayed, manipulation, control, bad stuff, right? To the point that uh, one night Hannah and I were both like in our various parts of our home in the fetal position sobbing, not even knowing how to pray. It was really bad. And in that season... I had a friend and a mentor by the name of Greg Johnson, who was a gift to the church. And Greg, I remember him telling me one of the early conversations where he spent trying to encourage me and keep me afloat on the phone. He said, Brad, I, I know it does not feel like it right now, but this is actually God being really good to you. Because pastors who don't learn to suffer well before they see any success in ministry, often implode and abuse other people. 
And God loves you too much to let that happen to you. And I don't know, I mean, I can't even tell you how much that has shaped me because he said, he said, if you, if you do nothing other, if you, if you have no success, whatever, however that's defined, in ministry, in your first call as a pastor, except that you are an example for a flock on how to suffer well, that will have been more powerful and more faithful than if you had not suffered well and had lots of success. Man, I, I'm telling you, that truth is one of the few that actually, like, really made a visceral difference. Because, because that's not just Greg saying that. That is, that is a, a theme throughout all of Jesus' ministry, right? In, in, in Matthew 5, when he's given the Beatitudes, he's saying, blessed, and when you, by the way, anytime you see blessed is, say, hap, read happy is. He's not saying that necessarily this is a gift. It's, it's, that's describing a response, a reaction of the person undergoing it. Blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account which can include as a result of living faithfully or following Jesus in general, right? Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're in good company. <laughs> like, the prophets. Oh, and also, that includes Jesus' own experience, right? We're not called to be happy or blessed about the trial itself, we're not supposed to be like, oh, yay, pain. <laughs> We're also not supposed to be uh, you know, denying the severity or the reality of the severity of the trial itself, but to view the trial through a gospel lens. A friend of mine, uh, same person I was talking to about this passage, he texted me, he said this, he says, what you're saying here is that the gospel meets us where we are and takes us where we never wanted or imagined in conf- nor imagined in conformity with Christ, however, slowly and painfully. And I love this part. Aslan's claws seemed to rip the greed-dragoned Eustace to shreds, but what was left when he was finished was the real Eustace after all. That is a gospel lens for suffering. It is a resilience and a steadfastness and an endurance that is, that is not passive as if we are only or merely victims of suffering, but an act of trust that continues on the right path when it's just easier to stop or take the wrong path. That's very strange, I know. It's strange for all of us, right? I, just like to, to zoom this out very meta here, just culturally speaking, um, there has been a pendulum swing within my generation, which I'm like an older millennial and, you know, bordering, flirting with Gen X, right? Um, but baby boomers who lived on, um, after the greatest generation, when their dads all came home from World War II, they were, so, were too PTSD riddled to, to really be emotionally present. And so a lot of you, sorry, baby boomers, a lot of you grew up very emotionally stunted and, and didn't have the kind of connection, an entire generation because of that. And so Gen X and millennials, we see that in our parents, and we have swung the pendulum way in the other direction so that we value authenticity to an idol, an idol or a fault. And so the problem with that is, is we've gone from like this kind of stoicism where we saw therapy as a sign of weakness and something that's bad to like no emotional honesty that is, is more than emotional honesty. It's actually a powerlessness. 
in the face of hardship, a fragility even. And if we are powerless in the face of hardship and we don't have the resources that we're talking about and James is advocating for, then we will flee pain and we will flee suffering because we are powerless in the face of it. Gen Z, I'm sorry. I have no idea how we're going to mess you up. Okay? That's still very TBD. Okay? Regardless, wherever you sit on that generational spectrum, this is crushing because even if you're not consciously thinking it, your default posture towards suffering is going to be that either this is your fault, even if it's not, or this is God's disfavor, as in like he's punishing you or something, or both. What James is telling us and encouraging us is to trust God's promise that he will co-opt the trials to make us more mature, Trust the promise of his faithfulness to equip us to endure any and all trial. Because maturity is more than just a single virtue. It's all of them. What's being promised here isn't just that it's going to make you more patient or more resilient or more loving or more willing to sacrifice or more generous or more kind or more whatever. It's all of that and more. It's actually a promise that God will bear the fruit in you and produce the fruit in you of Christ-likeness itself. In other words, when we live like Jesus for the love of Jesus, God grows our joy in following Jesus. And then wash, rinse, repeat, right? That maturity, that's huge, right? That's amazing. And it also, in order to pursue that, in order to pursue that steadfastness, that resilience, that maturity, we need wisdom. Let me revisit verse 5 and reread that. He says, and I'm, I'm going to kind of break this down as I go, because there's like at least five like, groups of words in this one verse that are all profound and bear slowing down and, and sitting in. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, okay, if you lack the ability, the know-how, the resources, the resilience to navigate these trials, let him ask God. Not because God is waiting with his arms crossed for you to trust him, but because he's welcoming it arms wide open. Who gives generously. This is, this is who God is. This isn't just something he does. He is the God who gives generously to all, everyone, anyone. Like, let me say this too. If, if you're not a Christian and you pray and ask for wisdom from God, this includes you. I think he will give it to you without reproach. He's not going to beat you up. It's not a debt you're incurring. You don't owe him one because he's going to give you wisdom now like a favor. And it will be given to him. Not if you pray a certain way. Not if you have a certain amount of faith. It's not none of those things. Note, he doesn't say also, um, he doesn't say pray for the end of your trial or your suffering. That's, look, you can pray for that. You should. God doesn't fault you for praying, but the emphasis, the thing that he's like, what you need actually even more than a lack of suffering is the wisdom to navigate it, to endure well. This simultaneously assumes the unavoidable reality of suffering in a fallen world, and it affirms the deeper reality of the kingship of Jesus. One of my favorite verses is, is Hebrews 2.10. 
This is crazy. It says, for it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect. Again, mature. Should make the founder of your salvation mature through suffering. Hold up. (laughs) You're telling me that the creator of the universe for whom and by whom all things were made and the king, that's the language the founder, the king that uh, of our salvation, the one who decrees it and therefore it becomes true by virtue of his decreeing, not because of our response, but by virtue of his decreeing and proclaiming that God considered it worth it and appropriate and fitting to endure all of the trials and learn to suffer well that we do. Both as an example and as a path in response to that salvation. Grace doesn't just abound in the midst of suffering. It reigns over it. It has power over your trial, whatever that trial is. And yes, that one too. Whatever it is the one you're thinking of. Whether it's a trial that's been passed that you still feel like you are suffering the wounds of and dealing with and struggling with, that's valid. It has no power over you in Christ. That is an objective truth and reality that does not matter how much it may feel like it affects you because it is God's faithfulness, not yours, that determines that. That's why when verses 6 through 8, when it says, right, uh, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That sounds like it flies right in the face of everything I just said. And it doesn't. Here's why. Because the way that James is using the word doubt and this double-mindedness is not the way that we do. It's not saying, like, if you've ever questioned or struggled, don't expect God to give you anything. It's just not going to happen. It's twofold. It's saying... Don't ask for wisdom without being willing to suffer for it. Because we cannot expect to grow in Christ's likeness without loving like Christ did, which means sacrificially. I remember, I did not grow up a Christian. I remember um, my friend from high school, this was in college, but he was a friend from high school, went to different colleges. When I was on the phone with him and he was telling me about Jesus, I at one point, a few, several months into these conversations we had pretty regularly, um, I was like, okay, man, um, I'm ready. I, I believe. I, I want to be a Christian. What do I do? And most friends would be like, yes, right? And, and say, like, here's what you do. Here's what we do. He very wisely, and I don't know where this came from for him because he's not typically a wise person. I love him. Um, he said, he said, are you sure? It's like, are you, I was like stunned. I was like, that is not what I was expecting from you, man. Um, he's like, no, no I, just, I just wanted to make sure that you, you're not wanting this thinking it's going to make life easier. Because if anything, it's actually going to make life harder, but better too. And I, I'm so thankful that he said that because that's what James is talking about that. It's like, don't expect this to make things easier. Just make sure, just expect God to equip you in it. Secondly, He's saying, don't just ask for wisdom. Don't just ask it saying like, hey, God, I'm going to check this box. Can you give me wisdom? Okay, thanks, good. He's saying, ask sincerely, repeatedly, pursue it, and in the trust that God will give it to you as you go. And that means not 
waiting for you to feel wise. Like, but anyone ever feel wise before you have to be wise? Not few of us feel wise after we've had to be wise, right? That's not a thing. And if we wait for that to happen, it, we will never step out into active trust or faith for God to provide the wisdom. We can't hedge our bets or trust wisdom that's contrary to God's by waiting for him. We, we can trust that he will be in there in the midst of it. One thing to point out in chapter one, because we're going to be in chapter one next week also, is all of the imperatives here, all of the shoulds in the first chapter of James are very cognitively oriented, right? In verse two, he says, count it all joy. So in other words, consider it, right? Verse five says, ask for wisdom. There's a cognitive aspect of that too. Verse 13 through 16 says, don't be deceived, right? Kind of framed in the negative. 19 through 20 say to, to know this. 22 through 25 say, don't forget the word that we have written to you. What, what he's saying in this is not, and is not describing the kind of intellectual dados that we're used to. He's saying a, a really and actually set your intentions toward trust, including that trusting that God will deliver maturity, wisdom, and joy as promised. Um, one of the single most humorous illustrations I ever get to tell is this one. Um, I was in college, and uh, I went through Army ROTC, was there on a scholarship for that, and served for 11 years in the Army National Guard. And in ROTC, one of the, the kind of culmination experience that you have, you do in the summer after your junior year. It's called LDAC, or Leadership Development Assessment Course. It's seven weeks. It's in Fort Lewis, Washington, which is a beautiful place, um, and also in a temperate rainforest, um, which is relevant uh, because in those seven weeks, uh, like three or three and a half of them were all in the field without a break. And not a big deal if you've been to basic training, but if you're a young punk college student, that's a lot of work. Um, and in this temperate rainforest, part of what you would do when you got ready to go to bed every night is you would dig a, you know, a 12, 16-inch um, uh, grave, basically. They called it a ranger grave. And the point of that was so that you would sit, you would sleep below the, the top level of the ground so if there's any, you know, grenades or explosions or something that the shrapnel would just pass over you instead of into you on the side. And um, I learned uh, fairly early on uh, that it's really important to dig those correctly uh, because if you, I mentioned that it was in a temperate rainforest. And if you dig a hole and then sleep in it, and you do not dig it at an angle such that it is slants and allows the water to drain, you will wake up in the middle of night thinking you are drowning. Okay? In this temperate rainforest, it also got particularly chilly uh, at night, even in June when I was there. It would, it would get down to like the, the low 40s. And when you're wet, because you, 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 you you're not dry after day three. Like, you, you don't have any other dry clothes. It's just not a, an option. Some of us kept one sock, a pair of socks in a Ziploc bag for when we were desperate. Um, and so it's cold. And this one night, probably about a little less than halfway through it, I woke up thinking I was drowning in my sleeping bag, which is also, like, soaking wet because my ranger grave had filled to the point where it was coming up to the point of my nose and I was choking on it. But I was also in a Gore-Tex cover for that sleeping bag, and so I couldn't, didn't know in my confusion of waking up which way was out, and I, I, psychologically, I lost it. Like, I panicked. I'd been cold, I'd been wet, had not been warm for a long time, and was just like, 
So I was desperate, and um, I there was a uh, rare example of, and cadets were not allowed to use this, so I broke some rules, um, a, a porta potty uh, nearby. And I took, I was a baby Christian at the time, I took my Bible in a zip, Ziploc bag, and I went to the porta potty and read my Bible, because I'm just like, I need something. I wish I could remember what the passage was, um, but it, I don't remember what the passage was because that was not necessarily the thing that gave me hope. It was the fact that that was such an amazingly warm porta potty. (laughs) And I'm not going to go into the biological or chemical details of why that warmth was so heavenly, but it was heavenly. And I didn't rejoice at at the, the miserableness of my situation, but I was really, really happy and was grateful that I had gone through something that made me appreciate a porta potty in a whole new way. And I know that the scripture was relevant at the time as well. I remember that even if I don't remember what it was, okay? What that is and what I'm describing is a steadfastness that is a change in mindset that then enables us to experience joy where we would not have otherwise found it. I don't know about you, but not, neither before nor since have I had the reaction of heavenly, heaven-sent joy in a porta potty right? That's not a thing unless you've been through that trial, okay? Even then, I know that was funny, at least I hope it was, uh, and amusing, but I think if we're honest, right, it is one thing to ask for wisdom in a circumstance like that and, to, and another to follow where it leads, to then see other trials that are less exotic or acute as one where we can experience joy. It is one thing to talk about this in hindsight, believe me. <laughs> also, it's another thing to do that in training versus real life where you could actually have shrapnel um, explode near you in your sleep, right? That's a very different thing. And it's another to give up this kind of frantic self-preservation that we live in as a default to actually pray or depend on God for wisdom instead of our own busyness and strength. And so if you think that's easy, then we're either fooling ourselves or we live in a truly privileged life. But we've got some good news because that, for that difficulty. And this will be the last thing I say before we go into the Q&A, so feel free to text those in. Um, verse 12, let me read this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The word, the name Stephen, is the Greek transliteration and an adaptation of the same word for crown. When James is writing this, It is after Stephen has been stoned. So when he says, when this man has remained steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This is a direct allusion to Stephen's friends. What what he's saying is, yes, this gospel ends for suffering. It says it has no power over you. 
That applies to Stephen too. It applies also to the thing that you're afraid of, to the thing, the, the, the reason why you are tempted in the first place to fight fire with fire. He says, I got something better than fire. I've got life, and it's a crown. This verse 12 is, is, is the hope for the most brutal of suffering that we can go through in life including the suffering other than that that is a persecution or a consequence of following Jesus. And that hope is that the end of the story is not tragedy or injustice, but a royal inheritance and a heavenly reward. James is not saying this, does, this trial you're experiencing doesn't matter. He's saying it actually matters a whole lot. It matters this much. That steadfastness is met with God's royal blessing and inheritance. But that sounds like this is reduced to like a, you know, maybe a hope and a future grace, like a reward in some kind of way. And it is that, but it's also subtly and clearly an implied present grace as well. Because let me ask this question. How many of you, by a show of hands, um, uh, have lived verse 12 fully? Me neither. Has anyone? Actually, yes. Jesus did. We may ask why this is happening. Why is this happening in the midst of trials? And, and the Bible and prayer and God may not, be, may not give you a direct answer to that. But the cross once and for all rules out that God could, might be unaware, unempathetic, or uninvolved. And that is our hope. That is the, that is, that is the power that we have it's a power for steadfastness and wisdom that is unlike any other, that the way of the world is, can't even hold a candle to. Never mind, is that worth fighting fire with fire? Let me just end with this because I know I'm, I'm going late here. This, this, this helps us see, and James is writing this because he understands what is often hardest to see when we are in the midst of trial itself, which is that Jesus is our guide, our giver, and our guarantor. We can remain steadfast because Jesus showed us how. He gives us wisdom and he paid the cost of when we fail to, to, to be steadfast. There's grace for that too. All right, let's see what questions we have. And I'm going to try and keep it a little short today because I went along. Um, does this passage have application when everything is going well? Is it a problem that I don't feel like I am facing trials and tribulations currently? Oh, this is a good question. First of all, can we hang out more? Because that sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> no, I would say that that is an opportunity then to be grateful. And two, so two, two parts of the answer. One, it's an opportunity to praise God and be grateful because that is a gift. And if you don't feel like you're facing trial, specifically for as especially as a consequence of, of following Jesus, I would be asking God and, and praying and asking for wisdom in how to live in such a way that is maybe more sacrificial because if, if, if you're feeling like, no, this isn't actually all that hard, then there's probably some real opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness there, right? Um, and I hear you, like, by the way, I just want to affirm, like, I hear you asking that. In, it, that's implied. You can't ask this question if that's not your heart. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to imply that you might be avoiding that. I'm saying that, like, man... Giving until it hurts, that's Jesus' way. Giving of yourself, of your finances, of your time, of your resources, of your knowledge, of your wisdom, all of it. 
Uh, next question. Wow, you were listening to my prayers this last few months and summarized just yesterday morning and decided to answer all the questions. Oh, sorry. Wow, were you listening to my prayers this last few months and summarized just yesterday morning and decided to answer all the questions I was asking? Look, I was not actually listening to your prayers because that'd be creepy. Uh, but Jesus apparently was, and I am so glad. Like, what an, what an incredible live illustration of, of Jesus delivering on his promise to give wisdom in the midst of whenever we ask. Okay, one more question. Um, okay, there's a, a few questions here. Okay, are maturity and wisdom synonymous in this context? Good question. Is James saying that by asking for wisdom, you are also essentially asking for hardships, knowing that it is through hardships the maturity, that maturity is developed? Okay, the first question, they are very, very similar. The relationship for them is not nearly as clean as we would normally think in terms of our definitions of them. They're describing, like, both are means and end, right? When we act wisely, we become more wise also. And maturity, when we act maturity, maturely and we seek God in the midst of it, then he grows us as well. So that there's, a, there's a synonymous, synonymousness, synonymity, anyway, there. Um, uh, but they are very much different emphases. And so he's trying to describe the full picture of sanctification, really. Um, as James asking, saying that by asking for wisdom, we are also essentially asking for hardships, knowing that it is through hardships that maturity is developed. Yes. Pretty much unequivocal. Yeah, absolutely. When you ask for God to grow you, it will be through difficulty, and it will be leading you in a direction of sacrifice and Christ-likeness. That might be like just... Who knows the source or the theme of that? But absolutely, that is the case. Both the, doubt, the word steadfastness and doubt lead us to interpret this passage very differently from what you are teaching us. Why don't the translators provide better wording to avoid these misinterpretations? Oh, man, that's a big question. Um, it has actually a lot to do with how we hear things. Like the word perfect is actually the literal way that that... Greek word is used, but the way that we use the word perfect is different from the way that the original audience did. And so it's less of a problem of translation. This translation just focuses, like, leans in the direction of literal, um, and I'm just kind of saving us some time. Ironic, since I'm going late. Um, last thing, the same person. The, the blessings described in this passage seem so conditional on our own strength of faith and love. I don't know how to unlearn this. The blessings described in this passage seem so conditioned on our own strength of faith and love. I don't know how to unlearn this. I get that. This is part of the, what I was saying at the very beginning that when, when I was talking about how James is kind of like, like a random collection of wisdom or things that we use to, to bludgeon and weaponize people who disagree with us. Like, you should care about social justice because James says we should care about orphans and widows. It's like, well, yes, technically... Also, we're going to talk about that passage and how it might not mean what you think it means, a la Inigo Montoya. Um, what James sees that we often swing the pendulum in the other direction and overcorrect on is James is saying, like, no, it is when you're in the midst of trials that your response, yes, your behavior matters, not because it determines or conditions your salvation or how much God loves you. That's not what James is saying. And that's the kind of legalism that a lot of people, 
you know, if this is you, whoever sent this in, like this may have been part of your church upbringing, that is very common, okay? That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is where it matters is our cooperation with God in the midst of our own sanctification can lead to more or less fruit. That's very different from your salvation depends on this. That's not bad news. That's actually good news because Jesus has said that he, and and all of the promises that we're talking about this morning are Jesus saying, I promise to be with you. I promise to provide you the wisdom if you ask for it. And that's why when he was with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. It is broken for you. You are unable to perform this duty, this obligation. I know that. I am the sacrificial lamb. I am in your place. You risk nothing before God when you fail because of me. Likewise, he takes the wine, he pours it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. Yes, before you commit them to. Your salvation is perfected and authored by the one who checked all of the boxes, who satisfied judgment and rescued you from your foolishness. None of that is on the line here. And that truth, Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return, he's saying that you are receiving this nourishment. Your very dependence on me in this is the strength that you need to be strange in a world that is actually strange to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your nourishment in your table. I pray that whatever heaviness um, we're feeling right now, whether that is because of the burdens that we brought in or the way in which we are hearing uh, this message and it, it seems to burden us, and Lord, I get that. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That because, because of what you have done, because of your gospel, because of your sacrifice on the cross, you are guarantor of our love, being belovedness. That there is nothing on the line with you because you put everything on the line for us. Thank you, Jesus. Let us rejoice in that. We pray in your name. Amen.